Hello and welcome to a very special episode of 90 Second Narratives. I'm the host and creator of 90 Second Narratives, Sky Michael Johnston. And today I'm very excited to have compiled for you all 10 stories that were shared in the first season of 90 Second Narratives. In addition to being very accessible weekly stories, I've always envisioned that another great way to experience the stories collected in a single season of the podcast would be to listen to them in one sitting and think about the connections that you can draw between them. The theme for season one has been looking the part, and each story relates to that concept in a unique way. But I also noticed other themes that seem to rise to the surface over the course of the season. So I've organized today's episode into different groups according to what stood out to me as the elements that connected different stories. I'd love to know if the same ones stand out to you, or if you see other points of connection, it would seriously make my day to hear your thoughts on Twitter at 90 Second Narratives. And hang out until the end of this episode, and I'll be announcing the theme for Season 2. 10 new weekly episodes, 10 new stories, starting this Monday. But first, let's get back to the stories from Season 1, starting with the first group of stories, which struck me as having this in common. Each one has a surprising answer to the question, Who shapes a state or a government? These stories reveal people seemingly at the margins of power in their society having an influence on the formal legal systems under which they lived. Once again, here is Joanna Peterson, a PhD candidate in the Department of History at the University of California, San Diego, with her story, Schoolgirl Activism in French Mandate Lebanon. Dr. Ayal Weinberg, a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute for Historical Studies at the University of Texas at Austin, with two doctors, two paths in Cold War Brazil, and Dr. Adrian Masters, a researcher at the University of Tübingen with lawmakers in the Spanish Empire. On December 1, 1924, French High Commissioner Maxime Weygand closed Ahlia Girls' School for a period of three months to begin in 10 days. Though the official reason for the closure was the unauthorized addition of a boys' boarding section, Official documents indicate concerns over anti-French activities. In response, 100 students marched together under the banner of Athia Scouting Troop, breaking through a wall of French soldiers guarding the central government building in order to demand that the new French High Commissioner, Maurice Sarai, reopen their school. Along with their troop leader, Alice Abicarius, the girls of Athia made their case to the High Commissioner. Between their demonstration and the interventions of the community, the French reopened the school by early January 1925. During the French mandate in Lebanon, girls' schools emerged as central places for both contesting colonial rule and defining women's place in the future independent state. Through their involvement in organizations such as the Girl Scouts, schoolgirls articulated a vision of the state and its citizens centered on the claiming of rights, shared responsibility for the welfare of the community, and participation in public life. Though they continued to be excluded from access to formal power, women and girls, as shown by the actions of the Athia Girl Guides, were at the center of such a state. How does a story about two doctors reveal the social, political, and ethical divisions that typified Brazil during the Cold War? In early 1960s, Luis Tenorio and Ricardo Fayage were peers in the same Rio de Janeiro Medical School receiving some of the best medical education offered in Brazil. In 1964, they had witnessed the Brazilian military oust the president and install a dictatorship 
ruled the country for 21 years and employed harsh repression against citizens deemed subversives. After graduating, Tenorio became a political dissident in opposition to the regime and provided medical assistance to members of the armed left. Fayaj, however, became a military physician and monitored the cruel treatment and torture of political prisoners. While they chose very different lives, their paths continued to intersect. In 1972, at the peak of state-sponsored repression, the dictatorship's security forces apprehended and brutally tortured Tenorio. The physician overseeing the torture was none other than Tenorio's old classmate, Fayaj, who allowed the violent interrogation to continue. Then, in 1994, almost a decade after the end of military rule, Brazil's medical board relied on the testimonies of Tenorio and other torture victims when it revoked Fayad's medical license for violating the Code of Medical Ethics. Luis Tenorio and Ricardo Fayad's contrasting trajectories, therefore, not only illuminate what happens to medical ethics under authoritarianism, but also illustrate the significant role doctors can play in transitional justice struggles. Pedro Rangifo was a part Indian, part Spanish man from the La Paz area of what is today Bolivia, who around 1583 sailed from Lima for Madrid. He had an important message for King Philip II, perhaps the world's most powerful ruler. In the late 1570s, a group of friars had convinced the king and the Council of the Indies to ban part Indians from the priesthood, calling this group mestizos, and saying they were not ready to be ordained. So a group of 150 of these so-called mestizos banded together and created a roughly 500-page petition to reverse this. Rangifo was already headed to Madrid to see if he could personally receive a royal pension for his father's deeds. Rangifo had to race from Lima northwards to Panama to meet up with the Armada of Tierra Firme. The fleet was delayed by two shipwrecks and shipments of silver and gold hiding from a British pirate. So by the time Rangifo caught up, it was hurricane season. While he escaped, in the Atlantic, the Armada encountered French pirates from Normandy, whom they captured, and barely missed a very dangerous convoy of Moroccan corsairs. And this was just the start. In Spain, Rangifo submitted his petitions to the council, who thought the king should hear from him personally. But King Philip was sick with gout and only met with Rangifo in mid-1588. Finally, he won a remarkable piece of legislation which made mestizos equal to Spaniards. The next group of stories that I've brought together all have to do with the global history of Christianity. And what stood out to me the most in these stories as a group is the question of inclusion versus boundaries, especially within Christianity itself. I think you'll find it interesting to pay attention to where lines were drawn in each of these accounts. Here are four stories. First, Race and Violence in Early Modern Spain, from Dr. Aaron Kathleen Rowe, an associate professor of history at Johns Hopkins University. Second, a Catholic in Confucian robes, told by me. Third, the answered prayer of Wang Ming Dao by Dr. Amy O'Keefe, an assistant professor of history at Meredith College. And fourth, Martin Luther goes undercover, also by me. On Holy Thursday in the year 1604, in the city of Seville, Spain, a bloody fight broke out between two confraternities on the Plaza of San Salvador as they went on procession carrying the statues of their patron saints on large floats. One confraternity, Our Lady of Antiquity, consisted of well-to-do citizens, while the other, 
Our Lady of the Angels, was poorer, with a membership solely of black residents. The two confraternities collided in something of a traffic jam, and they began to yell at each other to give way. Both refused to do so, and a brawl broke out in which stones were thrown, swords brandished, and blood shed. Throughout the 16th century, Seville had become home to rapidly increasing numbers of enslaved West and Central Africans, and maintained the highest population of enslaved and free black people in Spain. Baptized upon arrival, black Christians quickly formed their own confraternities for community worship and participation in the city's big festivals. Were white and black Christians equal, as St. Paul had argued that, quote, we are all one in Christ? What would happen to the order of a slave society if enslaved people were permitted to force free white men to stand down? Here we see a striking example of the potential promise of spiritual equality colliding with the social realities of a slaveholding society, where whites insisted on their superiority. Surrounded by prejudice and hostility, Afro-Iberians nevertheless fought back, insisted on their right to participate in civic life, asserting themselves as both Christian and Spanish. What in the world was a Jesuit priest doing in Beijing's Forbidden City, dressed like a Confucian? I'm talking about Matteo Ricci, the Italian-born member of the Society of Jesus who spent the last nine years of his life from 1601 to 1610 in the capital of Ming, China. Ricci actually did many things in the imperial capital of the vast and powerful Ming dynasty. He tutored would-be bureaucrats for their state exams, made maps, and showcased scientific instruments. But ultimately, he was seeking to win converts to Christianity. Like the Chinese clothes he wore, all of these activities were part of an effort to gain admittance to the most elite centers of power in the Ming Dynasty. And it worked. Ricci was the first European to enter the Forbidden City, one of the most exclusive places on the planet. It was all a part of a missionary strategy to convert influential people who would in turn lead countless others to the foreign religion. In this phase of the plan, Ricci had moderate success. The Jesuits were able to help establish a community of Chinese Christians that survived throughout the 17th century. The great lengths that Ricci went to to make his message appealing to Chinese audiences eventually contributed to the Chinese rights controversy an early 18th century scandal that undermined the progress the Jesuits had made in China. Church officials in Rome condemned certain doctrinal accommodations that Jesuit missionaries had made in China and ordered the missionaries to reteach the doctrines in a way that alienated Chinese converts and the emperor. But despite the opposition it ultimately met, Matteo Ricci's vision for a presentation of the Christian religion that could win over Chinese rulers established unprecedented cultural ties between elites in Europe and China. If you have heard of the Chinese Christian preacher Wang Mingdao, what you've heard is probably about his conflict with the Chinese Communist Party. Wang was imprisoned for 22 years because in the mid-1950s he refused to join the Communist Religious Oversight Organization, the Three Self-Patriotic Movement. But Wang was no political activist, and his history of resisting church federations began more than a decade earlier, during the Japanese occupation of North China. Wang Mingdao erected his first church building in 1937, just as the Japanese were pushing into Beijing. For a while, his work was relatively unaffected by the Japanese occupation, 
But after the 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor brought the United States into World War II, the Japanese occupation government turned a searchlight on Christian organizations that might have ties with foreign imperialists. Wong's church had no foreign ties. He despised the liberal teachings of many Western Christians. They denied core parts of Wong's Christianity, like the virgin birth and the atonement, resurrection, and second coming of Jesus Christ. Wong also opposed the reform efforts of Western-linked churches and groups like the YMCA, which he felt compromised with worldly institutions. In 1935, he'd even written an article entitled, The Sins of the Modern YMCA. Though Wong's church was free of foreign entanglements, still he feared for its future under the Japanese. He approached the Japanese authorities and was given permission to hold church and eventually to resume publication of his magazine. But the biggest trial remained ahead. The Japanese state was pushing Wong to join their church federation, which was led by a YMCA man. After fasting and praying about what to do, Wong received an answer in the form of a scripture that came to his mind. What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? The infidel was not the Japanese state, but liberal Christian groups like the YMCA. Wong formalized his refusal to join with a letter and waited for the other shoe to drop. In November 1942, he was summoned to the military police station. Preparing for a long imprisonment, Wong packed his overcoat, toothbrush, socks, and Bible, and turned up only to be told that he'd been summoned through a clerical error and was not needed. After this event, Wong turned a corner. It was clear to him now that the Japanese were not going to come for him. He felt triumphantly assured of his prophetic status and divine protection. He would need this assurance years later when facing the Communist Party's demands that he affiliate with their new Christian oversight organization, led by another YMCA man. Wang's story is a reminder that not all martyrs to the state are its political opponents or set out to be dissidents. Sometimes dissident status is forced on people who just want the freedom to remain aloof. You know Martin Luther as the German monk who challenged the teaching of the Roman Church and sparked the Protestant Reformation. In late 1521, however, Luther was hiding for his life shortly after being condemned as a heretic by the Pope and declared an outlaw by the Holy Roman Emperor. He was holed up in a hilltop castle owned by his powerful local prince and supporter, Frederick III. To keep his identity secret from guests at the castle, Luther grew a beard, made up an alias, George, and posed as a knight. He made the most of his uninterrupted time in the castle by producing his landmark German translation of the New Testament. But trouble was brewing back in Luther's hometown of Wittenberg, where his friends and colleagues struggled to navigate the dangerous waters of actually applying Luther's theological teachings to daily life and practice. Unable to stay away, Luther went undercover boss as George the Knight. He visited friends in Wittenberg and returned to the safety of the castle without being detected by the public. The entire episode of Luther's stint as a fake knight, including his daring disguised inspection, would turn out to be a pivotal moment in the history of the Protestant Reformation. The strife that engulfed Wittenberg in his absence established the fact that Luther alone possessed the magnetic pull necessary to hold the burgeoning reform movement together. He boldly returned to Wittenberg a few months after his secret visit, this time as himself, and took back the reins of his religious movement establishing himself as the leader of what is still known today as Lutheranism. The next two stories remind us that looking the part can sometimes involve non-human things. In her story, Making Cow Brains Your Oyster, 
Dr. Claudia Krecklau, an associate lecturer in the School of History at the University of St. Andrews, tells us that food can also look the part. Then my story, Missionaries Try to Convert a Desert, recounts an effort to reshape an entire landscape. About 150 years ago, looking the part of being middle class in German lands involved eating organs. Meat was a primary feature of middle class eating habits, and yet, particularly in small towns, Germans seeking to be recognized as middle class could not afford to throw away less conventional parts of the animal. Organs displayed a major part in middle class dining throughout this period, even late into the 1860s. Sometimes baked, sometimes marinated, boiled or seared, cow's brains, lungs and udders demonstrate the slightly paradoxical aspects of being middle class in the middle of the 19th century, where efforts to dine well and appear to dine well meshed with the practical necessity of hunger and scarcity of meat. Cookbook authors like Emma Allestein were aware that not all organs appealed to the middle class. Regarding the serving of kidneys, for example, she wrote, In some households, the kidneys are seldom or begrudgingly eaten. Author Christian Ohm provided a remedy with a recipe for false oysters from cow's brain. Boiled, let brain rest in water for eight days. Serve with anchovy butter and broth, breadcrumbs and lemon pieces baked in oyster shells. These soft pieces of cow's brains transformed into an apparent luxury dish. When oysters are in season, Urm specified, one can receive some deep shells in guest houses, which one can clean, dry, and keep to serve cow's brain in repeatedly. Not only does the transformation of brain matter into oysters served in discarded pop shells show us that the aspiring middling were skeptical about eating organs, but just how strong their desire was to look the part of being middle class. In the mid-18th century, a group of German Jesuit missionaries tried to convert the desert landscape of Baja, California. And I mean a physical and spiritual conversion of the land. Let me explain. The missionaries, working in tandem with Spanish colonialists, sought to convert, baptize, and reform the lifestyles of the Cochini, Huayicura, and Pericu populations in northwest colonial Mexico. But the arid landscape of the peninsula was perceived as a hindrance to these goals. Jakob Begert, one of the missionaries, described the environment as nothing but innumerable stones, and these you find in all four directions. The Europeans built imposing churches on the land, but were unable to produce enough agriculture or livestock to support themselves, much less a stable community of new converts. The missionaries and Spanish soldiers received shipments of supplies. The indigenous populations continued to live their nomadic hunter-gatherer lifestyle, spending most of the year away from the missions built around the new churches. The missionaries' perception of this situation offers an illuminating perspective of the troubling relationship between the state and Christianity in colonial North America. Begert wrote of the indigenous populations, before they were Christianized, they had no religion at all because they had no law and order, by which he meant the type of control exerted by state power. The problem, as he perceived it, was that even after they were baptized, the new converts in the region continued to live without law and order. The missionaries were unable to forcibly induce the local populations to conform to prescribed manners of living, 
because they could not control them while they lived away from the missions. By failing to convert the desert land of Baja California into something more agriculturally fertile, the missionaries never gained the coercive power they viewed as essential to effectively establishing Christianity in the region. Or, as Begert wrote in his own words, I am firmly convinced that if the missionaries would leave the country, from that hour Christianity would vanish and not one child would be baptized in the future. Such is my abysmal judgment. Finally, today's last story, A Puritan Tells Ghost Stories, shared by Ryan Hoselton, an instructor and postdoctoral researcher at the University of Heidelberg, offers several surprises. Not only is a Puritan telling ghost stories, he does so to empirically prove the existence of the afterlife. Do you believe in the immortality of your soul? If not, the colonial New England minister, Cotton Mather, would like to tell you some ghost stories. Mather was deeply entrenched in the experimental philosophy of the early Enlightenment. He was also a proto-evangelical, whose life mission was to spiritually revive New England souls. These scientific and evangelical impulses fused together in his unpublished treatise on eschatology, titled The Triparadesis. Here, Mather wishes to prove the immortality of the soul with three empirically verifiable ghost stories. Mather assures us, he, quote, did, by the strictest inquiries, make all possible confirmation. Folks, these are true ghost stories. I will tell you the second story. Two women, Mehetabel and Mary, made a pact that whoever died first would visit the other to confirm that there is, in fact, life after death. Poor Mary died shortly after. And sure enough, Mehetabel started hearing a voice call to her. Hitty, come here. Mother writes, there ensued violent and very audible knocks from an invisible hand, such that it shook her mother's house. Even the neighbors heard it. Mehetabel sought lodging elsewhere, but the voice and the knocking followed her. She soon received news about the death of her friend Mary, and she recalled the pact they made. But in case Mehetabel didn't get the message, Mary's ghost continued to haunt her. One night, when the voice and knocking became unbearable, Mather explains, Mehetabel took the courage, though not without a sweating terror upon her, to speak, In the name of the Lord, what is it that you come for? Immediately, a shrill voice very audibly answered, Hitty, come hither! Hitty, come hither! Hitty, come hither! After this episode, they heard no more from Mary. But within about a week, Mehetabel became ill herself and died, though, as Mather describes, in a very comfortable frame of mind, presumably with the security of knowing that her soul would live on. Thank you so much for listening to the first season of 90 Second Narratives, and thank you to our storytellers, Joanna Peterson, Ayal Weinberg, Adrian Masters, Aaron Kathleen Rowe, Amy O'Keefe, Claudia Krecklau, and Ryan Hosselton. And now, I'm thrilled to tell you that starting this Monday, 90 Second Narratives continues with its second season, and the theme for the season is Cities. Each episode will feature a story from a different city around the world, from the earliest cities to the near past. Listen every Monday, and we'll take a journey together to a surprise destination. 
I'm sure that these stories are going to change the ways you think about how humans live together. And I also can't wait to introduce you to the 10 new historians who will tell us season two's little stories with big historical significance. I'm Sky Michael Johnston. Thank you for joining me today.